Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would, like now, I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Michael B. <laughs> Hi, my name is Michael, and I'm a compulsive low reader. And uh, James gave me way too much credit, uh, but it sounded good. I kind of liked it. Um, so um, I want to thank uh, uh, Andrea for asking me to share. Andrea is um, is a mensch. I don't know if you know what a mensch is. I think the literal term for mensch in, in Yiddish is man. It's a man, but. It's, it's a transgender thing. It's like it's like do it, she does the right thing, and I got a character defect that if you do it my way, it's the right thing, but if you don't do it my way, it's the wrong thing. But anyway, Andrea is a good example to me. She um, she um, I think I sponsored her for a minute, like a few years ago, and she was really really struggling with the food, and uh, and I just felt helpless, and she felt helpless, and and she called me and she said, Michael, she said. Thank you so much for trying to help you. You really, you know, you really touched me, and but I, it's not working. And thank you very much. She left the relationship like a mensch. You know what I mean? The right, the, you know. And I haven't always been that way. Also, she called me and she said, um, you know, my have to work. I'm not going to be able to see you, and I'm I'm really sorry, but I, you know, there's things really hectic at work. That's a mensch. That's kind of a, make makes me feel good. You know what I mean? To do the right thing, and I don't always think about how you feel. As a matter of fact, most of the time I think about how I feel, which is why I use food as a uh, to numb myself, um, because I'm very, very self-obsessed. Um, I came to you guys uh, in the early 80s uh, through the back doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got clean and sober, and I, I was smoking three packs a day, three packs of cigarettes a day. And I was just going crazy, and uh, and I was just spewing out anything I wanted to in AA because I wanted to stay sober. And uh, I started spewing about the cigarettes, and the old timers came up to me and said, "Stop it!" I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "We don't give a damn about your cigarette addiction. You know, you can smoke yourself to death. All we care is that you don't drink. You know, a day at a time." And I got, I thought, how rude is that? <laughs> and. Uh, but somebody put his arm around me. I remember his name was Brian. He had an English accent. He said, Michael, he says, you know, there's something called um, Smokers Anonymous. In those days, it was Smokers. I think it's called Nicotine Anonymous now. It still exists. He says, why don't you go and bitch and complain about your cigarette addiction in, in Smokers Anonymous? I said, yeah, I'll do that. And, and I did it. And there's one guy that was a secretary, and he just, it was an hour meeting, and he told me what he was like, what happened, and what it was like now. And he said, I'll see you next week. And in retrospect, if I remember, it was it took me about six weeks of showing up at that meeting consistently, and the three-pack-a-day cigarette addiction was lifted. And uh, so the 12 steps worked, right? And shortly after that, the guy said, you know what, I think I'm nominating you secretary, and I'll see you later. And, uh, and, uh, and so many, many weeks, I would show up with a big book in a format, and uh, I would be the only one there. 
but I had the willingness to be willing to do, to follow direction and to do what it took. The only problem was, is that after I, I got, I guess you call it, what is it, Smober or something, the three-pack-a-day <laughs> cigarette addiction was lifted, I, I put on 30 pounds in 30 days. And it was not the first time that I had compulsively overate, but it was the first time I was conscious of it. And I don't know about you guys, you know, if you work in the 12 steps, you get conscience, conscious of this, and it's not always comfortable, you know what I mean? And um, so uh, I went to my AA meeting, and I started bitching and complaining about Haagen-Dazs and, and eggnog shakes and uh, taquitos and pizza with anchovies and mushrooms and all this stuff. And uh, they told me the same people said, shut up, you know, <laughs> didn't you learn anything? I go, yeah, I think I did. And, uh, and, I, and I came to you. And uh, I, I probably sat in the back and I listened to you and, you know, you talked about three meals a day with nothing in between and, and no recreational sugar and some of you didn't eat white flour. And so I thought, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. But I didn't get it because I didn't use you. I didn't talk to you. And, uh, and after about a year of being very uncomfortable and gaining more and more weight, I raised my hand. I said, my name is Michael. I'm a compulsive overeater and I need help. I need help. Um, and so Matt M., um, who's still around, um, lost over 100 pounds. He gave me his number and he, he said, Mike, why don't you call me tomorrow? And I called him and he asked me what I was going to eat. And I told him, uh, I don't know. And he said, well, why don't you call me at the end of the day or call me the next day and let me know what you ate. And I said, all right. And that was a little bit easier than planning my food because I didn't want to know what I was putting in my body. And I didn't want to really stop, you know. But I took this direction. And I think probably whatever I ate, it was quite a while ago, um, it was a cleaner, a little bit cleaner because I had to be accountable to another human being. I didn't have to. I didn't even have to call it back. But somehow there's this higher power that like works in this room that gives me just a little bit of willingness to do something that I don't want to do. And I called him the next day and he got me in the habit of taking what I call a fifth step with my food. And it's admitting to God, to myself, to another human being, the exact nature of my food, good, bad, or indifferent, right? And uh, so he got me in the habit of doing that. And I started going to uh, OA meetings, and I trusted Matt, and uh, the weight came off, and it was relatively easy. Um, what had happened to me is um, I, um, character defects came up. And um, I had this character defect of not wanting to work. And um, <laughs> so um, fear and whatever you want to call it. And I was in this job for like 12 and a half years. And uh, I was bitching and complaining about it. And, you know, and I, Richie, um, Richie became my sponsor, my OA sponsor. I don't know, Richie passed away recently. Richie talked like this. And he was also a 100-pounder. And he was very well-respected in this, in this uh, community. And, uh, and I would call him and I'd say, you know, Richie, I'm an, I, you know, I want to act, but I'm just so exhausted at the end of the day. And this is a do-nothing job. And, and he says, well, what time do you leave the job? And I said, well, I leave at noon. And he says, well, do you go on auditions? And I go, well, no. Um, I go to the beach. I, I work on my tan. 
in case a, an audition comes my way. He says, do you know that there are actors that work full-time and they go and they perform full-time, you know, and they do plays and they do all that stuff? What are you talking about? And, um, and I didn't like him very much because he, like, he pulled my covers. And, uh, and I had a trump card. And, and it, this is kind of, it's uh, my, my mother... Um, in the early 50s, after she had me, she suffered from something called uh, postpartum depression. And I think a lot of ladies suffer from that. But she never got any better. And uh, in the early 50s, she finally was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. And um, so uh, she, she became suicidal. And uh, she became dangerous to herself and to her family. And so um, she ended up in Patton State Hospital in San Bernardino. And uh, she was institutionalized. And in those days, they had something called a lobotomy. And, um, and my mother wanted it because she was miserable. Um, and she had shock treatment. She, she craved shock treatment because she, she said it, after she had shock treatment, she would be in reality for a little bit. It would shock her back into reality. So she didn't have a, um, a, a pretty life. And um, so um, she died in her early 40s. Um, on the grounds of Camarillo State Hospital, um, ironically going to get a pack of cigarettes. You know, she just keeled over from a heart attack with all the medication and all the lobotomy and the shock treatment and stuff. Her heart just couldn't take it. Um, I remember, um, I must have been about 18 years old, and they were lowering her into the ground, and my father asked the rabbi, I said, uh, what was the point, rabbi? You know, you know, she just suffered so much of her life. And the rabbi's answer was, you know, Louis, sometimes we just don't know what God's will is. You know, and I thought, what the heck is that? You know, I don't like that answer. You know, and uh, so I kind of shut myself up off with it for any kind of uh, higher power. So until I came to you guys and I started doing inventory, and uh, maybe I'll tell you a little bit later. But I'll tell you now uh, the way I, I feel about my mother. Um, first of all, well, I'm an only child because they didn't want to have kids after she got so sick, and. Um, so my mother gave me a pretty big gift, um, birth. You know what I mean? <laughs> Without her, I wouldn't be around. And um, and to see her suffer like that, my memories of her, we'd go up to Patton and like we'd take her out. and She'd be crying and she'd go, Michael, I want to come home. I want to take care of you. And then the next weekend, she'd just be looped. She'd be like catatonic and she'd lash out and she'd slap my father. And she just, you never knew, you know, how she was going to be. It was scary. It was frightening to, to me. So uh, I think it was a blessing. You know, she was. She would be in her 90s now. You know, doing the Thorazine shuffle in Patton State Hospital. So I believe God um, um, took her for a reason. You know, and uh, so my life um, is um, is pretty good right now. I'll tell you a little bit about what happened. So, so I thought that um, I might have a mental disorder when I didn't want to uh, get up and go to work in the morning, and my sponsor would tell me just show up to work and I'd say but you know I don't like the job and he says well if you want to quit your job get another job before you quit and, oh all right you know so uh, I started getting involved in therapy because uh, I thought I had a mental issue I was in my, my 40s maybe or early 40s 
and I uh, got into group therapy and I got myself an individual therapist and uh, in those days um, teddy bears were pretty prevalent uh, you, uh, you were talking about your inner child you know and you'd nurture your inner child that suffered so much and you'd get introspective and you'd think about you know your past and, and then I come to you guys and you told me don't get introspective you know, get out of yourself go ahead and shake somebody's hand if you're feeling self-centered and self-obsessed and I got very very confused and uh, so um, it's like the lady said uh, do you want to be skinny or do you want to be sane you know and to me my disease told me I got to get into this therapy more and so instead of doing both I, I stopped coming to you guys incrementally and it got really really scary and I started getting resentments against people, and uh, and I quit my job. This job that I had 12 and a half years, I called my sponsor, and I said, I really, oh, he wasn't there. So I called somebody from one of these outside therapy programs, and they said, Michael, go with what's in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> so I was gone. You know, I gave my two weeks notice, and I was feeling really good, you know, on the beach and everything, and... Uh, but in a, in a few months, my savings ran out. And uh, the lady that I was living with uh, was not, uh, couldn't pay the rent, you know, wasn't accustomed to supporting me in the manner that I thought I should be supported. And, uh, and it was getting really, really scary. And I don't know about you guys. I mean, if, you, if, I, if I'm working this program just by the food alone, I'm crazy. I'm shit. I'm crazy. I get angry. I get nuts. And, uh, and I, was, I was crazy and nuts, and I, uh, I got, finally got a psychiatrist to prescribe uh, some antidepressants for me, you know, and I started taking these things, and, uh, and uh, I called the psychiatrist. I said, you know what, I, I, uh, I need more of these because I don't feel anything. <laughs> and the shrink said, you're not supposed to feel anything. You're supposed to level you out. And I said, I don't want to be leveled out. I said, I want to feel. Can you increase the dosage? And so he increased the do dosage. And uh, I still didn't feel anything. Except I don't think I felt as guilty when I stayed in bed and didn't go look for a job. <laughs> so anyway, it was nasty. And uh, I made Dr. Paul rest in peace. I heard him once in this particular venue. Dr. Paul is in, our, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He wrote this story uh, that's called, uh, used to be Doctor, Addict, Alcoholic. I think it's called On Acceptance now. And it's, uh, it's, it's my favorite story. And he was so accessible to us. He lived in Laguna Beach. He'd get his phone number from the podium and stuff. And so he talked and he said, uh, never in my 20-some-odd years of sobriety, he was clean and sober, that, did I have a problem to which the 12 steps did not offer me a solution. And I was so far away from the 12 steps. And it resonated with me. It, actually, it saved my life. And I was too afraid to ask him for his phone number, but his wife, Max, was sitting in the front row, and I went up to her and I asked for his number. And here's that little God shot, the willingness to give somebody a call, you know, that I knew was doing the right thing. And he was a doctor. And, uh, and I started to call him, and he got me back into the 12-step program. And uh, it was a blessing. Um, I, uh, 
heard a girl. I started going to meetings, and things started to resonate for me. I, I up until that point, I don't even think I had a sponsor. I was, I was using the group as a sponsor, so I'd run my ideas by a lot of people, and then the person that would agree with me, I would take that suggestion. I don't know if any of you have done that before, but it doesn't work very well. Um, so, uh, so Paul, I trusted, and I started calling him consistently. And I heard a person talk about how they changed their sobriety date because they got a psychiatrist to um, give them medication. You know, and uh, this is an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, but I am also an alcoholic. So if I go out in my AA program, I go out in my OA pro- program. They're synonymous. You know what I mean? So I made the decision to change my day, and I changed my abstinence date as well. And, uh, you know, my sponsor, I was afraid to ask my sponsor if I could come back to OA, because in the group that I belong to, it's very structured and disciplined, and my way of just being nebulous and asking everybody for help. And I went to him, and I said, you know, i got to go back to OA. And I said, I think I I need a sponsor in that group. He says, you got to do what you got to do. And so I had his blessings, and I came back to Richie, and I started calling in my food again. And I've been doing it uh, relatively uh, consistently since uh, July 20th, 1990. So, um, So I've been abstinent for a while, and I've been in recovery for a while, and my life has, has changed a lot. Um, I told you I didn't like to work. Um, I, um, I uh, made a mistake in telling my sponsor at the time that I, prior to coming to program, I was substitute. I had a, almost got a teaching credential, and, um, and um, I stopped. And I stopped to practice the disease. And uh, so my sponsor said, well, why don't you go back and talk to a counselor and see what it would take to get your teaching credential. And I said, I don't think I want to teach. I think I'm an actor. I want to act. And he said, well, he said, it doesn't matter whether you're an actor, a dentist, a doctor. He said, the spiritual message is you go back and you complete something that you left incomplete. And it seems like you left that incomplete. Can you at least talk to a counselor? Mm. I said, I can go talk to a counselor. And I went and talked to a counselor. The counselor found my records uh, 17 years prior, and it turns out all those classes that I took all those years ago were applicable to the present, the current time, and uh, that I only needed like one more class mm. to, to complete it. And so my sponsor said, well, can you take that class? And I said, yeah, I can take that class. And I took that class, and... Uh, and then after then it was time to go student teach, and uh, and then for some reason I again it's a god shot the willingness to go and student teach I think the classroom was like third graders in elementary school and once a week they would go and volunteer in a physically health impaired class a first grade class and second grade class the kids had cerebral palsy and muscular dystrophy and my heart melted for some reason I really had some compassion and empathy for these kids and the, the teacher saw that I was I had an affinity for those kids and when my student teaching was over she said well if, if you're going to go get a job I know a couple of people in that field you know you might want to go and and, and I hated, I was petrified of going on any um, job interviews. I don't think I've ever done it before. And I didn't have a resume, 
But the class that I student taught for made a book for me and to, to Mr. Blanc. And they, and they, they were, Mr. Blanc, we love you so much. You're the best teacher. And they drew pictures and stuff. So when I went on this interview, I said, I don't have a resume, but this is my resume. This is the, and I handed them, you know, what the kids wrote. And it was, I'll never forget, it was a panel of, of, of teachers. And they had me go out of the room, and then I came back. And they said, you know, you've got the job if you want it, but it's a special ed class, and, you know, the kids were in walkers and wheelchairs, but you need a credential. You have your regular ed credential, but you have to get your special ed credential. And, and, I, and, and I said, well, and I went to this Cal State LA, and uh, sure enough, I could do it in the evening. So I could teach and get paid, regular pay, and, uh, and go, and I took one class uh, a quarter, just one class. I had a couple of kids at the, at the time, and so uh, I was busy, and I didn't want to take any, I don't know you guys, some of you guys are A-type personalities, I want to get it over, not me, I want to get out of bed in the morning, <laughs> not me. So, uh, so I took this class, and it took me years to get the credential, but for 11 years, I taught this special day class, and the parents, like, trusted me with their kids with severe physical health impairments, because I loved them, I loved the kids. Many times I call Richie, and I say, Richie, you know, there's standards, and they're testing these kids, and they're just pressure, pressure, and he says, Michael, just shut up and love the kids. Can you love the kids? Yeah, I can do that. So I still hear his voice saying that to me today. Um, shut up and love the kids. Um, so, you know, I wanted to be an actor. And so this uh, opportunity came up. Uh, and um, they, um, with LA Unified, they have this arts education program. And they have uh, theater arts and visual arts and music and all this stuff. And so I went down to the to the center there and I, and I applied for the job and the lady said well, it's very competitive they're working actors that want to do this and you know you've, we'll put you on a list but she said well we'll send somebody out to your classroom and we'll, we, you know, we'll have somebody look at you and so they sent somebody out to my classroom and that particular day we were mixing with the regular ed population and I love to mix special ed with regular ed because you know fourth to sixth graders they see an anomaly and they, they're scared and they can that time they can put down on the kids and I brought them together and all the discipline problems that the fifth graders, sixth grade teachers had, they'd send them to my classroom because I'd put them, make them be of service. And there, you could see their heart, the tough kids, their hearts would melt. And what can we do for you and can we help you out? It was magic. It was really magic. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just loving the kids. So anyway, this other job came up, and so they sent somebody to my classroom, and they called me the next day, and they said, Michael, if you want the job, you've got it. And, um, and I took it. And um, so now, <laughs> if they don't find me out, uh, let's see, when is the, the June 8th is our last day of teaching. So I will have been teaching for 12 years. And uh, so I go from school to school. I'm a theater arts teacher. I teach five classes a day, kindergarten through eighth grade. A lot of kids. Thank God they wear name tags because my memory is uh, is shot. And you know, I don't know if they're learning theater arts, and pantomime, and improvisation. But I'm loving, I'm loving the kids, and I take a lot of programming in, in with me. So I love my job, uh, but I love my vacation as well. And if you're a teacher, you know you get lots of paid vacation, and summer is coming. Uh, so um, my family, um, the lady who was not accustomed of taking care of me, 
um, uh, the way I thought she should. Um, we, after about 10 years, uh, got pregnant. And so we got married. And Isabella is now 25. She's going to be 26 years old. She's a preschool teacher now as well. Uh, her, da- her sister's Ileana. We have a 22-year-old who's in college as well, basketball player in college. Um, Nicholas is my 19-year-old son. I'm having a little problem uh, with Nick right now, and uh, so I'm a little in a little bit of fear about that. And then my older son from my previous marriage is 41 years old. And Sean um, has 11 and a half years uh, clean and sober with nothing that affects him from the neck up. And uh, my son, 12 years ago, uh, was in mental institutions and uh, very uh, similar to my mother and uh, got really, really scary. And um, so he was just sitting on the couch and he was taking more and more meds and the psychiatrist solutions was to give him more meds. And I remember going to the shrink and uh, with Sean and saying, you know, I'm involved in a group and, you know, it's 12-step oriented and before you give him any more medita- medication, can you, can you just suggest that he come to the group? And Sean, I don't know if you've got your parents that have children that you try to tell them what to do and they don't listen to you. But for some reason, the psychiatrist was like a sponsor to him. And he trusted him, and so he, Sean latched onto the group that I'm involved in in the other program. And um, so, um, yeah, so he's, oh, and the psychiatrist told him, you know, well, go to this 12-step program, but you're bipolar, and, you know, you'll never be able to exist without meds. You've got to take your medication. And Sean hasn't taken any medication. But his choice. And he met a girl in, in, in the program who's clean and sober, and he had two children. I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old grandson. So the chain has broken. You know, my father died of cirrhosis of the liver, and his father, my grandfather, died of cirrhosis of the liver. My uncle Danny uh, decided to come out of the closet when he was 30 years old in the early 60s and tell the family that he was gay. It was not fashionable to do that in the early 60s. He suffered a lot. He drank and used a lot. He ended up uh, ODing with the Red Devils and alcohol, so he killed himself. So looking back at the wreckage of my family's past, I see that I have a son that's clean and sober now, and I have a family and I'm clean and sober, and, you know, uh, we're living on the right side, and I'm a fervent believer of the 12 steps. My son, Nicholas, 19 years old, got a great scholarship to Bennington College in Vermont, almost paid for, and he just worked his butt off, and he went to Bennington in in the early part of the year, and then we got calls from... uh, the counselor that he was starting to fail in his classes. And we started calling him, and he wouldn't respond to us. And uh, he cut off all communications 3,000 miles away, 19 years old. My, you know, schizophrenia happens in that particular time. So the shrink there says, you better come and get him. And went back to Vermont and went to get him and took him back. And he's diagnosed as being depressed. And he's seeing a shrink right now. We've got him evaluated at UCLA. He's not schizophrenic, thank God. But uh, now the, bless you, the shrink is uh, uh, um, wanting to give him um, medication. So like I did with Sean, you know, last week, I said, can you try a 12-step program? I don't think Nick is an alcoholic. He may be. I don't know. It's not, you know, for me to say. But I know there's Al-Anon, you know, and I know that they work the 12 steps. 
So, and I know that I need Al-Anon too, because I tell my wife and my kids, and I just want them to do what I want them to do, and if they don't do it, I get pissed off and I eat. So it's a good supplement to my OA program, because I have to have a modicum of serenity in order to make healthy food choices. So, there was a 10-minute mark that, that uh, was given to me. Um, I'm going to end a little bit early if anybody wants to ask me some questions. Thank you for letting me share. Yeah, I can talk about it. Oh, can I talk about my higher power? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, you know, God either is or he isn't, it says in the big book. And um, I'll tell you, I don't want to get out of bed in the mornings. Uh, I just don't. I like the bed, the warmth of my bed. And I've got guys that call me in the morning. And I have the willingness to call a sponsor from bedside. And we read a little bit to each other, a little spiritual stuff. While I'm driving to work, you know, the guys are reading to me as well. We say, we say the third step prayer. says. So I still can get very much into fear. But what more does my higher power have to do but, you know, keep me abstinent, first of all. I'm not killing myself with food. Um, give me uh, a family. I'm an only child. I don't understand sibling rivalry. I got four friggin' kids for crying out loud. Um, um, make me want to um, do the right thing by my wife because I was raised by a grandmother that was very abusive and screaming and yelling, and I I had done that to my ex-wife, and I was doing that to my current wife as well. So anyway, my higher power is very evident in my life, but I got to do the work. You know what I mean? And I don't like to work. But even when I don't want to work, for some, some power gives me the impetus to do the next indicated step. You know, to go talk to the counselor. You know? And so, whether I believe it, most days I believe it, some days I don't, and when I don't, I, I get the willingness to do the next indicated step. So, it's all about God. I mean, it's not me. It's not me. Yes? Thank you so much. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your abstinence and how you find serenity? What's my abstinence like and how do I find serenity with food? Well, um, the more I plan my food, um, the less I am obsessed with it. Okay? And during the week it's a little bit easier because I know what I'm going to eat for breakfast and lunch. Um, I don't eat recreational sugar. You know, I don't eat cake and ice cream and all of that stuff, but I'm not totally obsessed. I don't. I used to read labels. We went to Cancun in the early 80s, and we were dying. It was so hot, and they had, like, Coke, and I wouldn't eat Coke. I nearly killed myself with the pyramids and stuff. I'm not as crazy and obsessed as I was in the early 80s. But, uh, you know, basically three meals a day and, and uh, no recreational sugar. And, uh, and I'm letting somebody know, it's usually my sponsor, the exact nature of what I'm putting in my body. And, uh, and God takes care of the rest. And I make relatively healthy food choices. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. Um, what do you do for your spiritual life during the day? <sighs> what I do today? Um, oh, what do I do for my spiritual life during the day? So I stay in bed as late as long as I can, <laughs> and I had to be out by, you know, and so I, I used to, I, you know, I 
you know, Richie said to me, I said, you know, Richie, I'm Jewish. You know, we don't get on our knees. And he, Richie heard my inventory, and he said to me, since when have you been a practicing Jew? Said, get on your knees. What's wrong with you? So I get on my knees, you know. Usually it's in bed. And I say the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer just to cover my bases, you know what I mean? And today I had to be at a place at 7 o'clock. It was in auditions, and I was really afraid. My, a lot of my colleagues were there, and Terrell was speaking somewhere, and I just told him my fears on the machine. I'm really afraid. I'm going to ask God to, you know. And then he texted me a little mantra. Um, ask God to give you the strength not to succumb to your self-centered fear and go out and help others. Something like that. So every day I get a little mantra from my sponsor. And then uh, I talked to the guys. I knew I had to you know, it's going to be here to give James. And, you know, I went to Starbucks and I had some iced tea. And I have trouble with half and half. I don't know about you guys. But, uh, you know, I have been known to pour out half the iced tea and put the other half and half in a shitload of Splenda and all that stuff. But I had a commitment to God and to Terrell that I wasn't I was going to go for the non-fat milk. And plus, well, I didn't talk to Carol, Terrell today, but I knew I was going to speak here. So I had the willingness not to do the half and half today. Um, I'm going to go to another meeting because um, uh, my wife is doing something, so I'm going to go to another meeting. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to stay abstinent today, and I've, and I've got my food planned for today, and, and Terrell knows about it. So that's, that's what I did today. So, yes? Have you ever disagreed with your sponsor and chosen to do something different than what was suggested for you, and how did you manage that? Have I ever disagreed with my sponsor, chose something to do something different, and how did I deal with that? Yeah, I do that a lot. Um, I, you know what? I told you I had a problem with the anger and the rage with my wife and stuff, and Terrell has been telling me for years, you know, and Richie says, you know, you don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. So I have to ask for the willingness to be willing. To, to, to do, to change, to do differently. Just real quick, my sponsor has a prayer over his desk, and it says, uh, God, I don't know whether I'm doing your will or not. I mean, just because I think I'm doing your will doesn't mean that I'm actually doing it. But I know one thing. The desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And as long as I have that desire, you're not going to let me screw it up too badly. I'm really paraphrasing it. You know what I mean? And a lot of times I don't have the desire. So part of my prayer is, please, God, grant me the willingness to be willing to do your will. When I gave up the cigarettes, Red Sea used to say, give me the willingness to ask for the willingness to be willing. Mm -hmm. and, and, am I done? Thank you. <laughs>